This afternoon we open scripture in Romans 5, Romans 6. We begin reading it, Romans 5, verse 6 through to 21. Romans 5, verse 6, hear the word of God. When we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many." And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense... Judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then here begins our text for this afternoon. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. 
death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. After the proclamation of God's Word, we'll praise God with the words of hymn 55, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in that beautiful fifth chapter that we have read together, Paul speaks about two men and about how our lives are formed and shaped by these two men. The one, of course, is Adam. We all know what he speaks about. It's tragic. Sin came into the world through one man. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. But there's also a second person, and Paul can hardly contain himself when he speaks about that second person. How much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many so that by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. It's a splendid, glorious reality. As Paul waxes eloquently about it, the victory of Christ, things happen by Adam, sin, and death, but greater things happen by Christ, righteousness and life. But it raises the question, of course, how do we know that this is ours? How do we appropriate this for ourselves? How do we live and die out of the joy of this victory? Sure, we know we have to believe it. Paul has said that often enough. Need for faith. But are there not some kind of steps that we need to follow to live and die in the joy of the victory we have in Christ? How do we know it's for us? Over the centuries, there have, of course, been various answers to those questions. There are those who would suggest that what we need is to undergo some kind of spiritual experience. You could call it spirituality by mysticism or emotionalism. Others would suggest, no, what we need is a bunch of rules. Don't do this and don't do that and you'll be all right. Spirituality by legalism. Paul's actually fighting against that. There's also a spirituality by asceticism, that is by means of the, the idea is the world is corrupt and the world is bad, and if we can only withdraw ourselves away from the world as much as we possibly can, then we won't be so bad. The most extreme form of this happened when, with Simon Stylites, who long ago in church history reportedly had himself hauled up on a pole, and he lived on this pole for 36 years and had food hauled up to him by means of rope. It's a good idea, bad idea actually, a good idea in a way, but it was faulty because you see, when he hauled himself up to the pole, he hauled himself up the pole. And as our Lord Jesus says, 
Sin doesn't come from outside. The sin comes from inside. It's from in here. That's the problem. It seems, though, what we need instead is a clear understanding of Paul's answer contained right here in Romans 6, 1 to 14. What is Paul talking about here but, but about how to walk in victory in the Christian life? How to ensure that that reality of the last Adam and all its benefits are really ours? You see, Paul, the reason he wrote Romans was because Paul's opponents were suggesting that the gospel that Paul was proclaiming was actually making people lazy and wicked. It's a bit like Lord's Day 24 when it talks about justification by faith. It says that justification by faith is going to make people lawless and wicked and, and, and unrighteous. That was the Roman Catholic accusation, and the catechism responds to that. But some people said that. You can read the same thing in, in chapter 3, verse 8 of Romans. Paul's opponents were saying that that's what his gospel was doing. Paul, if you preach justification by grace, you'll make people lazy because they think that they can always get it and always receive it because it all flows out of grace. And you see the same thing in Romans 6, verse 1, when Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's he doing? He's, he's extrapolating a, a sentence from his opponents and saying, Let's imagine that we can just do this, continue in sin, so God can continue to pour down his grace. But no, no, Paul gives us a better answer. Paul wants to say, the only way you are going to live a Christian life to the utmost, with deeds, with all kinds of wonderful Christian actions, is if you see your life rooted and grounded in the life and death of your Lord Jesus Christ. Paul speaks, as it were, about three steps. It's possible to isolate some of the verbs, the action words, in these verses, and to get the gist of what he's saying, three times he uses the verb to know. One time he uses the verb to reckon. Other translations say to count or to consider. The New King James says to reckon. And three times he uses the verb to present. So he's saying that spiritual victory begins with knowing something. That's the first step. You've got to know something. It's the predominant verb in the first verses. Step number two comes in verse 11. In the same way, likewise, you also reckon yourselves dead to sin. And then we come to step number three. Do not present your parts of your body to sin, but present yourselves to God. God's Word comes to under this theme. The Apostle Paul speaks about the victorious life in Christ. We'll see what Christians need to know, what Christians need to reckon, and what Christians need to present. Someone suggested that the life of a Christian doesn't have to be a, a life of constant conflict, wondering what every day is going to bring. It should be the life of a more continuous victory. And that's really what Paul is suggesting. Those who are in Christ should be moving on to greater and greater victories, to a more and more wonderful obedience, 
rendering whatever they can under the rule of Jesus Christ. And we will if we listen to what Paul says here. The first thing he says is knowing Christian living is always dependent upon Christian learning. Duty follows from doctrine. If Satan can keep us ignorant, he will keep us impotent. So if you want victory, you have to know some truths. What are those truths? Well, Paul says in verse 2, do you not know that we were crucified with Christ? And in verse 3, that we were buried with Christ. And in verse 4, that we were raised with Christ. And in verse 5, that we have been united with Christ. You see, you could ask the question, how many people were crucified at Calvary And if you said three, then from a historical point of view, you'd be quite right. There was Jesus, and there was a man on his left and a man on his right. That's quite right. But from a theological point of view, you'd be quite wrong, because these verses are telling you that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you were there that day. You were crucified with Christ. You were buried with Him. You were raised with Him. The cross of Jesus, in a certain respect, is an event that transcends time. It's an event so important that it has implications before the universe was created and stretched out all the way to the end of time. Your spiritual history begins at the cross of Christ. You died with Him. You were buried with Him. You were raised from the dead with Him. You are united with Him. You are united in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians, Paul says, you have even ascended with Christ into the heavens. You are in the heavenlies in Him. Actually, you could go back further. You could say your spiritual history began in the garden. Physically, you were not there either, but spiritually, you were. And all the guilt and all the pollution of Adam was imputed to you as it were. Do you doubt that? I don't think you doubt that because you see sin in your life and you see weakness in your life and brokenness. It's because you were an Adam. So too at the cross. Physically, you were not there either, but theologically, spiritually, you were. It doesn't depend on us, but on Him and on the wonder of what God does in Christ. Paul says, you have to know this. And by know this, he doesn't just mean know this intellectually, but he means know it completely. Know it to the depth of your being. Know it as true of yourself. If you believe in Christ, you are united with Him in all these great redemptive events. You can put it this way, sin, the sin that you got from Adam and in Adam, it puts you in prison. Sin locked you behind those bars of guilt and shame and deception and fear. It did nothing but shackle you into the wall of misery. But the Lord Jesus came, and what did He do? He paid your bail. He served your time. He satisfied the penalty and set you free. The only way to be set from the prison of sin is to serve its penalty. The penalty was death. Someone had to die. No one gets out of prison until there is a death. While that death has occurred at Calvary, and the result is freedom. A very important verse in Paul's whole argument here is verse 7. 
He who has died has been freed from sin. It's an important principle here, a basic principle. The point is, throughout our lives, we're always fighting with sin. There's always sin lying close at hand. Paul's going to talk about that in Romans 7. Always sin lying close at hand. But you know what death does? Death does many things, but it also frees us from sin. Dead people don't sin. Well, Paul says, you, you died. You died with Christ. When he died, you died. So that changes decisively your relationship to sin also. Anyone who has, been di- has died has been set free from sin. Uh, Paul is not saying here, as some would have us believe, that it's impossible for, for believers to sin, but he's saying the fact that you died when Christ died, that means you forever have a different, a better relationship to sin. Verse 2, he says, we died to sin. Verse 7 explains, you are freed from sin. To be dead to sin means to be freed from the ruining power of sin in your life. You are no longer under the dominion of sin. It means although sin is a reality, it no longer has the power to dominate your life. It no longer has the power to be that which you are constantly in. You may face sin now and then. Of course you face sin now and then. You face sin too often, but you are not living in sin. You are not controlled by sin. As a matter of fact, when you are controlled by sin and when you're living in sin, that's when the elders become mobile and they come and visit you and say, we want to talk about your life and about your sin and about what's right and what's wrong and the new life we have in Christ. And the fact that sin no longer has dominion over you, that means It means, to be very concrete, you can still sin if you want to, but it means you don't have to. Sin shall not be your master. You don't have to sin. You're free. It means you don't have to speak that nasty word. It means you don't have to see that horrible video. You don't have to steal what you thought about stealing. Sin shall not be your master. You can actually say no to sin. Because you died to sin when Christ died. Thanks be to God. The emphasis is we have been freed from sin. Sin no longer rules our lives. You see that in verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Verse 7, he who has died has been freed from sin. Verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. You don't have to sin. Don't treat yourself as if you're a victim to sin. I can't help it. This is who I am. I'm a sinful bird being. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Why do we have a new glorious reality? It's because of our union in Christ. Because he died to sin, everyone who died with him died to sin as well. And the result is, when you realize that, sin cannot dominate your life. The point is, we have to understand this. 
We think sin is natural. Sin is what we do. But Paul is saying when we sin, we are doing something very foolish, very contrary to our new nature. It's utterly ridiculous when you think about it. We have been freed from sin, says Paul. When the doors of a prison open, prisoners leave. Once the penalty is paid, why do you go back there? Why live under bondage? So too, Paul says, open up our life. Our union with Christ opens up our whole life before Him. A new life for Him, resurrection life. Verse 4, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we should walk in newness of life. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And verse 8 Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. It's a life in which actually the best is yet to come. Verse 5, if we have been united with Him in a death like this, certainly we shall also be united in the likeness of His resurrection. It's talking about the world after this world. So what we have now then is a new life and a new relationship to sin. No longer under its dominion. No longer under its power. And we look forward to a resurrection life when that will be total. We'll no more have anything to do with sin. We'll just live to the glory of God. Of course, you might say that you don't feel victorious. You might say, I don't feel like I was crucified with Christ. But feelings are not decisive. Feelings have little to do with it. We all go up and down emotionally, but you have to know this. If you're a believer, God has given you a brand new life, the resurrection life of His Son. Then from God's point of view, He sees you as dead, buried, raised with Jesus, and therefore united with Him so tightly that you can never be separated. True spirituality begins with a proper understanding of what God has done for you in Christ. And in case we don't get this, Paul uses the example of baptism. The point in verse 3 and 4, we were buried with Him through baptism into death. The point of those phrases is not that this reality is true for every person who is ever baptized. Paul knows of many Jews who were circumcised, and he would be the first one uh, to, to realize that not every Jew who was circumcised lived according to the reality of that circumcision. So baptism doesn't guarantee it for everybody, nor is this some kind of proof that, that only adults were baptized. No, no. You have to realize baptism became the symbol marker for the Christian life. To say baptism was to say Christianity. When anybody came from out of Judaism and became a Christian, what had to happen? They had to repent and be baptized. When somebody came from the Greek world to became a Christian, they had to be baptized. In the Roman world, they had to be baptized. And, and we, 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 we know from the book of Acts, face value, that when that happened, when believers came and were baptized, then their children were baptized with them. Baptism became the universal mark of Christians. It's another way to say that all Christians have participated in the death and burial of Christ. And to say to Jewish people that their kids 
don't come along and didn't come along would have raised an uproar that we certainly would have read a whole lot more about. But Paul's point is simply this. We have to go back to the beginning of our Christian lives. Whether the beginning of your Christian life was as an adult or whether your beginning of your Christian life was as a baby, whatever, whether I was baptized as an adult or as a child, my baptism signifies my identification with Jesus' death on the cross. Your baptism is another way in which God wants you to know that you have died with Christ. You were raised with Christ. You are united to Christ. Paul says, do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. It's this way of impressing that point upon us. This is what God is doing, having us know this. Our form for baptism, we read it this morning. It when we are baptized in the name of the Son, God the Son promises us He washes us in His blood from all our sins and unites us with Him in His death and resurrection. Thus we are freed from our sins and accounted righteous before God. So it pictures either what has happened for us and our children or where it's going to happen for newly baptized children. The old gives way to the new. Old sin-bound creatures have gone into the water and have come up as new sin-freed persons with a glorious future. And it's not as if that's going to happen by means of the water exactly at that moment. No, we remember what we prayed we pray with the form of baptism that God would graciously look upon this child and incorporate him by, into your son so that he may be buried with him by baptism into death, the Romans 6 language, and raised with him to walk in newness of life. That's what Christ promises, and that promise is what you need to appeal to in faith. Those objective facts you have to know. It all really comes down to Paul's the point in the last phrase of our, of our text. You are not under law, but under grace. You see, Paul's opponents wanted to say to Paul, if you want to encourage good behavior, moral living, you need to push them with the law and more law and more law. But Paul's answer is no, no. It's not a better view of the law you need. It's a better view of the grace of God. Something that with this phrase, Paul's casting aside the whole Old Testament as if that was under law. Now we're under grace. But no, Paul's opponents, they were trying to put the people under law and saying, grace is not enough, Paul. You need this law. And then Paul says, no, no. What we need is a better view of grace. How do we get Christian behavior? We get Christian behavior out of a better view of the grace of God. This is the most marvelous thing about being a Christian we don't just enter by grace and then figure it out ourselves. 
Our whole Christian life is characterized by this grace of God. It's grace from beginning to the end. We are under grace. We are over grace. Grace is the roof. Grace is the foundation. We never bear it before. We never merit later. It is in grace we stand, and by grace we continue from beginning to end. It is by grace alone that you are justified, having died, having been buried, having raised with Christ and walk in the newness of life. Ah, law can help a bit. It's good to read the law now and then because it reminds you of the fact that you need the grace of God because you can't do this just by the law all the time. The law will help somewhat. It will remind you about some rules. It will direct you back to the source. I mean, before Israel ever received the law, they received this wonderful act of grace in which God delivered them from from Egypt. Grace is not a Pauline invention. Grace was there from the beginning. But the law, when when you mess with the law, the problem is you're starting to live under the law, under the dominion of sin. And that's what you've got to stop doing. You've got to be free because Christ has died so that He would make you free. And that leads to step number two, as it were. Reckon it so. Verse 11, likewise you also reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You have to reckon it so. You know what reckon is? That's an old word, an old style word. Today's translation, consider, consider it so. Consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God. But there's something good about the word reckon. Because reckon, and the Greek word is a word for accounting. And that's what reckoning is. It's a word for accounting as well. The Greek word is a banking or accounting term. It means to credit money to a particular account. It means that when you deposit $1,000 into the bank or $10,000 into the bank, whatever money it is, the bank reckons it so. You know that you can live and you can do things because you have that money in the bank. It reckons it so. Reckoning means to count on the fact that God has already done what He said He would do. It means to count on the fact that if God said it, He meant it, and He did it. It means to live on the basis of the fact that God wasn't kidding when He said it was so. You need, Paul says, to reckon it so. You not only have to know that you have died with Christ and been raised with Christ and buried with Him and are ascended with Him, you also have to reckon it so. It's a, it's a very important concept, and it's what you, what you do. It determines everything. It, it, to think of that world of banking, for example, Precisely the fact that you can reckon things to be so in your bank account, that's what allows you to live. That's what allows you to live in the kind of house you live in. That's what allows you to go and buy the groceries. That's what allows you to do everything you do. You can do it because you reckon it so, and the bank reckons it so. Well, so too you can live your Christian life on the basis of not just of what you have done and what you have not done, but on the basis of what has happened in Christ. God reckons it so. And so you can go about the things you're called to do and you can live on the basis of what God reckons. 
As one man put it, the substance of Christian ethics is not a list of rules with case studies on how to handle legal conundrums when laws conflict. Christian ethics and Christian living are about properly walking in the way of Jesus Christ with the Spirit of Jesus Christ until the day of Jesus Christ. It's a matter of letting our behavior match our new identity. It's about working out what God has worked in. It's a matter of being what you now know that you are. And as we heard this morning, also the children have that new identity and the need to live out that new identity and draw the consequences from this new reality in Christ. Reckoning is not claiming a promise but acting upon a fact. It's not make-believe. It's not getting yourself into some emotional tizzy. It's acknowledging that objective fact. God reckons it so. When I live my life and I see my own actions, then I don't have a basis on which to reckon it so. But when I hear the gospel and know the gospel and see my Lord Jesus Christ, then I know I have there in His life and in His death a basis to reckon it so. What difference does that make this? The single biggest reason for our failure to adequately live the Christian life is this. We do not reckon it so. We're all very good at reckoning Adam's guilt to be so, and to reckon Adam's guilt as our own guilt. And we are all quick to excuse ourselves. Well, I'm human, I'm mortal, it's natural. Sometimes I think we know ourselves as persons who have professed their faith, who know God intellectually, but after that we just carry on and live like everybody else. What is the problem? It is a failure to reckon with that new and wonderful reality that is ours in Christ. We have to become, we are very good at saying, it all came from Adam. My sin, it's not, well, it's not really my fault. It came from Adam. It came from my parents. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's good. Uh, even the best works are defiled with sin. We're all good at saying, making our excuses because we know that we are united with Adam. But in the gospel is saying, you got to become even better at knowing that you are united in Christ and you are new people in Christ. And that in Christ, you have no more excuse for sin. We have to become as good, even better, at reckoning Christ's obedience as we ever were at reckoning Adam's disobedience as ours. We will always go down in defeat until we fail, as long as we fail to do that. Consider your great privilege. You are the congregation of Jesus Christ. That means you have a new king. You have a new master. You belong body and soul, life and death to Jesus Christ. And what does that language do? It it gives you, it's all cloaked in, in, in slavery language. 
Because you belong. Why do you belong? Because you're now a servant of Jesus Christ. How did you become a servant with Jesus Christ? Well, in those days, people bought servants. They bought their slaves. Well, he bought us with his blood, so we belong to him. You have a new king. You have a new master. You have a new Lord. You have a new way of looking at things through the eyes of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've been changed, moved from a kingdom of sin to a kingdom of righteousness and life. But it's not going to do any good if you don't reckon it so. You must reckon it so and live your life on the basis of the fact that you reckon it so. In 1982, an unusual thing happened on the island of Guam. A Japanese soldier came out of the jungle He had been living in the jungle for 37 years since the end of World War II. Why? Because when the news came at the end of the war, he couldn't believe that Japan had surrendered and the war was over. So for 37 years, he was content to live in the jungle. Let me ask you, during those 37 years, was he free? Absolutely. At any time, he could walk out of that jungle between 1945 until that day. He could come out in 1950, 1955, 1969. He was completely free on a theoretical basis. He knew it. They told him, but because he didn't believe it, because he did not reckon it so, he stayed in the jungle for 37 years. Was he free? Yes. Was he free? No, because he stayed in hiding, in bondage, in fear, in the jungle. Many Christians are still living in the jungle of sin. The war is over. Christ has won the battle. He set us free, but they refuse to believe it, think they're still victims of sin. They're still in the jungle spiritually because they refuse to believe that Christ has set them free. They are not reckoning with the glorious new realities that are there for them, there for us in Jesus Christ. You don't have to live in the jungle. You have been given a new life in Christ. He died for this new life. So get out and live that new life. Step number three is you got to know that now you need to present what you need to present and what you need not to present. Verse 13, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Your members, the NIV says, the parts of your body. What do you have to present to God? What do you have to offer to God? The parts of your body, your hands, your fingers, your eyes, your ears, your lips, your legs, your feet, your toes, and yes, I won't name them, but even your private parts. Paul's very specific about it. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but offer them to God. 
There are two aspects to this. First of all, it must be decisive. By decisive, I mean you've got to come to the place in your life where you say, where you decide you are going to be God's man or God's woman or God's child, and you're going to be that to the, to the max, to the utmost. None of this trying to figure out where's the, the limit, how much fun can I have without actually falling off the cliff of, of, of godlessness, and how much fun is, is enough so that I can determine how I can still go to heaven and still be saved even though I have all kinds of things going on in my life. Stop that. You've got to come to the point in your life where you decide you're going to be God's man, God's woman, God's child, wherever you are, whatever you do. Spirituality comes in the Christian life when we stop flirting with sin and we stop living on the edge and decide we are going to be those kind of people that Christ died to make them that kind of people. The way to spiritual victory is to understand you belong to him and to reckon it daily. There was a man who said to a servant every day, my servant, you've got to tell me that you're going to die. So every day the servant said, you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die. It's a good idea because we push death away and we want to forget about it, but maybe it would have been better for the servant to say, you have died in Christ. And we remind it every day, you have died in Christ. Your relationship to sin has changed. Live out that change today. Secondly, this offering should be definite. You know, at Romans 12, verse 1, there's a major shift in the letter to the Romans. Paul has talked for 11 chapters about the grace of God. He's applied it to the Jews and the Gentiles. And then in chapter 12, he says, therefore, and we get this, it's like the third part of the catechism. You get the practical stuff. And what's the practical stuff Paul says there? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, solely and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's a major point in Romans. It's a point at which Paul says, there once was a day when your spiritual worship consisted in going to a place and going to a temple and going to a tabernacle and in that place offering things to God. But now you have come to a better day. And in this better day, the objective is to present, not a sacrifice, not a lamb, not a goat, but to offer yourself to God. Present yourselves to God as a living sacrifice. That's going to be Paul's point. But already here, he's saying the same thing. As a result of believing, of knowing that you died with Christ, as a result of reckoning the fact that you died with Christ, you now need to daily present all the parts of your body to Christ. All the parts. Let's talk about your ears. You can sin with your lips. You can sin with your ears. When you listen to people say bad things about other people, Shouldn't you stop and say, let's not do that? When you say bad things about people, shouldn't you stop? You don't have to do that. Sin shall not be your master. Talk about your eyes. You don't have to look at what you want to look at 
Sin tells you, turn that thing on. Look at that screen. Go over there. You don't have to do that. It's a good question. What are you? Who are you when you're all in private? When the door is closed and nobody's home and you're just there alone? Who are you? Tell me what you do in your private moments. And I'll tell you whether your sin is your master or Jesus is your master. What about your hands, the parts of your body? Take it to all the parts of your body. Are your hands used with, off, with a view to offering your life to God? Or do you use your hands just to feed all those covetous desires? What about your feet? Do they actually take you to places that are helpful? They're pretty good at taking you places where, that aren't very helpful for living the Christian life. But what about places that are helpful? What about conferences and speakers and Bible studies that are helpful for us to live the Christian life and to, so that we know more and we reckon more and we present more? It's often said and so true, law will make you a better person. You know, every religion will make you a better person. Buddhism, Hinduism, you name it make you a better person. Rules do that as well. The law will make you a better person. By grace, grace makes you a new person, a new person who is free, from whom sin will not dominate. It's in fact the real force of chapter 6 verse 14. Sin will have no dominion over you because you are not under law but under grace. In other words, if all you've got is law, then it's just you and the law and you're forever fighting with the law and you win sometime and you lose sometime and you win sometime and you lose sometime. But, but you are not under law but under grace. And because you're under grace, sin will have no dominion over you. Christ did not die in vain. He died so that sin would have no dominion over you. Under grace, you can explore freedom. Under grace, you can cultivate new ways to please God, all because that precious reality, you are in Christ. Paul was so convinced of that. At one point he says to the Galatians, you know what? I don't even live. It is Christ who lives in me. Blessed you are if you say that. I no longer live. It is Christ who lives in me. Amen.